COVID policy response is interesting because in a lot of ways, it allows us to examine processes and systems that may have not been producing good outcomes for people or may have been putting people under strain for a long time. But the health crisis puts such an emergency focus of it that we have to respond because people's lives are at risk. Hey, thanks for joining us today. My name is Kieran Waterhouse, and I'm here with my friend Leslie and Saintmore. We are two law grads and friends, and we know that climate change is here and that we have to solve it. So every second Friday, we talk about how we can get there while improving our own lives and communities along the way. All opinions are our own. Today, we talk about policy responses to the COVID-19 crisis and how they can guide us towards stronger climate action. What does it mean when policy is based in behavioral science? Can we use humans' natural instincts for progress? Plus, a long-awaited conversation between epidemiologists and climate scientists that we want to happen on this week's Climate Allies. Welcome to Rebalancing Act. Joining us for this episode of Rebalancing Act, we have Sebastian Solomon Beata. Sebastian is a good friend of the podcast and works in policy development. He's also been involved with climate organizing throughout the years. The firm Sebastian works at, in terms of policy development, focuses on behavioral science-informed policy. So Sebastian, can you tell us a little bit about your work broadly? Hello, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm a big fan. I've always been really passionate about understanding the way in which people think and especially how they think about how they think. So this metacognition aspect by which people try to rationalize their own thinking and decision-making back to themselves and how it guides you know, the ways in which we behave and how then that shapes the way in which society behaves more broadly. So I studied sociology and my interest throughout my undergrad was trying to find the interlinkages between people's actions and their behaviors and broader societal goals and objectives. Um, so now I work for uh, the behavioral insights team. Um, behavioral insights is an approach that uses evidence of the conscious and non-conscious drivers of human behavior to address practical issues. So the real insight uh, within this field of work is that much of our behavior is non-conscious habitual and driven by cues in our environment or the way choices are presented. So in our day to day, we often end up using uh, mental shortcuts or rules of thumb to navigate our environment. The ways in which we respond to public policy or programs in our day to day happens very much in the same way. We use our quote unquote fast brain, um, which is very efficient. And it's the kind of thinking we have when we say two by two to approach practical challenges in our day-to-day as well, that, you know, sometimes other approaches towards policy have thought would be more quote-unquote rational. That's really helpful. I think I even now have a better understanding of what exactly it means to do policy in a way that's informed by behavioral science. I never think about it in the terms of the resources people have themselves and they're in the best position to understand. So I know that you've had the opportunity to work on some policy related to COVID. Is there anything you can tell us about how it felt to be able to do that kind of work? Yeah, we've, my team has supported uh, some COVID response initiatives with regards to communications and how we try and present the challenges and the potential solutions to people such that they'll be more likely to follow up on those actions. I think 
most people would agree that taking care of themselves is important, but sometimes there can be barriers to carrying out the actions that that care requires. So uh, in general, my work has done some research on on how to promote social distancing and mask wearing behaviors and hand washing and things of the sort. Personally, I've had the opportunity to support with more some of the more indirect pieces of COVID response, especially focusing on burnout for certain at-risk populations. And I think COVID policy response is interesting because in a lot of ways, it allows us to examine processes and systems that may have not been producing good outcomes for people or may have been putting people under strain for a long time. But the health crisis puts such an emergency focus of it that we have to respond because people's lives are at risk. So while my work related to COVID response is focused on more of the indirect consequences like additional strain and burnout on at-risk frontline workers, I think it's different to other policy areas have focused on before because the emergency response is just so much more clear. And the negative consequences that come from COVID are so immediate that it's very easy for us to visualize the incredible importance of those in the front lines and the incredible importance of response initiatives. And I think this is in contrast with other policy response areas, which preempt things that have consequences in more of a long term. And in a lot of cases, COVID has has put enough strain in systems that we're starting to see the importance of how these dynamics play. And for example, the link between housing um, and public health is so much more direct now in people's minds. And we can see why the housing emergency is something we need to address the public health crisis. That's a really, really good way of looking at it. That kind of creates two groups of policy response. One for those that are kind of recognized as an emergency and urgent, and those other kind of long-term, long-looking policy responses where you're not necessarily seeing such urgency. Does that reflect what you were saying? Yeah. And in a lot of ways, humans are, we're made to respond to things with more immediate consequences quicker, right? If hangovers happened an hour after drinking and not the next day, no one would drink. Similarly, this is why one of the big reasons why the period through which people are asymptomatic in COVID is so troublesome because they hit the hangover enough time afterwards that people may be taking more risky behaviors than they would. That's a really good way to put it. And I really like that hangover metaphor. With those kind of two types of policy that we've just talked about, those with an urgent response and those that are more long-term looking, I would want to say climate change should go in that first basket with kind of an urgent response required. But I feel like that's not how we see a lot of climate change policy. Where do you think climate change should fit within those kind of two baskets? I think a lot of it will change in years to come and already is changing as the the climate crisis looms more imminent and we have more and more evidence of its devastation for communities around the world. But I do want to, about this idea of the two baskets, really it's quite a diffuse line between response and more long term. And a lot of the times things that occur in immediate response require long term component and vice versa. What do you think we can learn about climate policy from the way that we've been approaching COVID? A lot of people seem to think that if we can respond to COVID this way, we should be able to respond to climate change. So in a lot of ways, I think by examining people's responses to COVID, 
which is a situation where everyone has to adapt their actions and their behaviors for the greater social good, even though there may be less onus or accountability placed on the person as an individual for these issues. We can draw a parallel from that to other things like the climate crisis, which might re- require individual action changes. I think there are distinctions in the extent to which these systemic issues are caused by more structural forces versus in COVID, I think the focus is rightly placed on individual action of people to prevent the spread. Um, whereas on climate change, we might need more structural responses. But at the end of the day, we do need people to act or think differently in some regard. So I understand what you're saying in the sense that COVID is much more spread by individual actions, whereas in terms of the climate crisis, as we've learned during COVID, during lockdown, when our individual carbon fr- footprints shrunk substantially because we weren't traveling, we weren't leaving our homes, but carbon emissions didn't drop as significantly as many people speculated they might because so many of the big sources of carbon are structural issues and our large corporations, our large industry like agriculture and transport that we as individuals don't have significant impact on in our daily choices. What do you think is the biggest lesson as someone who works in policy that we can take away from COVID to apply to climate change? Through COVID, we can very directly see what the outcomes of various policy actions and our societal choices are. I think in other policy realms like climate change, it will be important to be able to link specific policy uh, or social changes to the outcomes that these would have. I think increasingly as the climate emergency worsens, this is going to happen more and more. But I think we have to anticipate this and do better by clearly articulating the ways in which we need both individual and structural change to the ways in which we live our lives. I think that's a really, really important thing to consider because as an individual who I like to think of myself as pretty aware, pretty conscious of these different issues, particularly climate change, I like to think of myself as politically aware. What you just said really struck a chord with me in terms of the idea of how COVID has really raised, almost raised the stakes of my individual actions and what I can see. I can see that there are people around me being impacted by COVID. And I can see that my wearing a mask can make a difference because it feels so immediate in a way that I don't think I've ever felt about my individual actions in respect to a policy before. I've personally been tested twice for COVID after displaying symptoms. Thankfully, both tests were negative. And I was following the policies that have been put forward by our healthcare system in getting those tests. But I had never before really thought about how that really is almost a really direct feedback in terms of I get tested, I inform my friends that my test came back negative and we feel safer. Whereas when I take actions like recycling or turning out the lights if I'm not using them, I don't feel that same feedback from the climate crisis. And that's something I never really thought about before. At the same time, I think we also have to be careful of that immediate feedback in the sense that some of these small actions that we take uh, in with individual action, like wearing a mask or like recycling can make us feel more comfortable in other areas of a greater risk. Like we'll wear a mask and then we'll feel more comfortable being at a gathering or we'll recycle. So then we'll be less likely to think about the structural drivers of, uh, of the environmental crisis. Uh, I think it goes hand in hand, uh, you know, the importance of taking individual action without having this individual action inhibit more structural change. 
And that's it for our interview today. Thank you, Sebastian, so much for taking the time to be on our show. If you want to learn more about his work with the Behavioral Insights team, you can check out the link to his profile on their website in our show notes. And next, I'll talk to Kieran about her thoughts on the COVID and climate connection. So, Kieran, other than podcasting from your closet, how are you doing today? So I just wanted to give a shout out at the beginning of this episode to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away last night. And honestly, I am devastated. She, in addition to, of course, being an amazing U.S. Supreme Court jurist with some amazing dissents, impeccable reasoning, and I think such an innately strong sense of fairness, also became a celebrity, I think, for all of the right reasons because she truly was such an inspiring figure. I think both to young young women who wanted to practice law, but also just in general. Yeah. As, bo- as both of us are recent law graduates, not only was she inspiring and a role model to people around the world, but I know like I personally was deeply affected by her passing away because for me, she's been such... A role model and a celebrity in my life again for all the right reasons and it's so heartbreaking and it's so you know we lost her and her sense of fairness and her knowledge and her everything but it's so heartbreaking that we all know she really wanted to make it past the next election one of the last things that she shared with her granddaughter to share with the public was to not let them replace her until after the election. Um, And it's just so heartbreaking to me that she was trying to hold on for so long for all of us and not necessarily for herself. Yeah, I read something that I really appreciated, which just spoke to the burden that we place on women. The fact that she couldn't retire because so much hinged on her and she understood that and she tried her very best, an almost inhuman effort, I think, at great personal cost to herself. And I really, I really appreciate that so deeply. I think that's a huge sacrifice. And I know there are people who will criticize her for not having retired during the Obama years and not having made space on the court. And I think that's also something that's so frustrating to me because she is, in the literal sense of the word, a precedent-setting woman who we wanted to ask her to retire and to have her step down for our convenience. Yeah. The thing is, I guess that was never on her. That was never her responsibility to stop the political dynamics of the U.S. Supreme Court from evolving as they have. Her job was to be on the court and it was on all of the other institutions to ensure that the election of justices, you know, continued to be a fair and equitable process. I think if anything there is to take away, it's the idea that now that's on others. It's our responsibility to make sure that more justices like her, you know, fair-minded, rational thinkers, uh, generous and understanding of societal dynamics for under, you know, underprivileged and oppressed groups in society are elected to the Supreme Court. And I think it is really important that we can grieve and we can be sad, but we have to remember that she literally asked us to keep the fight going in her last days, and we need to take up that fight now. And so as much as we want to maybe feel sad and feel depressed and feel defeated, we can't do that. Um, So that was a great interview with Sebastian. 
I thought so too. It was a lot of fun to interview him. And it was really interesting to hear about his work in a way that even I hadn't heard about it before. Did you have maybe a favorite part you wanted to start with? Yeah, something that struck me, I think, was when he talked about scale. Scale and what the human mind is good at comprehending and what it's not good at comprehending. So I've known this for some time, and I think this is one of the fundamental questions of how the climate movement has evolved, is that human brains aren't very good at perceiving large numbers. And I can recognize that in myself. For example, I did not realize the scale of 1 billion versus 1 million. And how, you know, when you hear of billionaires, the concept of a billion dollars escapes me, I think. I can't feel the largeness of that number. And I think that's true of the scale of COVID deaths, because I remember back in March when I believe it was in Italy, I think they started having 10,000 new cases a day. And that felt really, that felt really big. And now when I hear case numbers that are, you know, um, just of a much larger scale than that, I find that like the additional largeness of those numbers and what they mean, I think like my brain can't perceive it. And also maybe it's become numb to it. And I think that's the same thing is true of climate change, where we hear these numbers and people try to use these various metaphors to visualize them, I think, to varying degrees of success. But we as one person, it's hard, it's hard to grasp uh, exactly what is happening. And I think especially what you said about the COVID cases, because for me, in Ontario, as we're recording this, we're looking at case numbers that are around 300, high 200s in terms of daily case numbers. And to me, those numbers seem really scary because I can picture our year in law school was 200 people roughly. So I can relate to that being, wow, that would be like our year and then some of people every day getting COVID. That's a lot of people. But when we talk about those numbers like 10,000 that I can't picture in a relatable way, I can understand that it's a large number and it's scary, but it doesn't hit me in kind of an almost emotional way the same way, because I can't relate to it. Yeah, you don't get the visceral reaction, I think. Yeah, exactly. So I think if there is a lesson to be drawn from that, it's that these metaphors are really important. That plus the numbers alone, statistics alone, are not an argument that we need to, I think, connect the more you know, connect the other ways in which it affects our lives. We drew out the implications of high COVID numbers for various metrics that people have been shown to really care about. The connection between a certain COVID number in the economy or your health or your kid's safety at school, I think those numbers, for example, if it was X many cases means that your child is X more likely to contract it in the classroom. I think that those numbers hit more personally. And I think in terms of climate activism, climate activists have started doing those kinds of things, you know, connecting it to you in your own life, the impacts of climate change versus as an abstract scale of energy. I think that's actually a really interesting opportunity for a connection to motivational interviewing. These practices like motivational interviewing let you learn what are those things that people care about that you can then apply to behavioral science-driven policy in understanding how to communicate with the larger public to meet those goals. It's a really important thing that we understand how there's a lot of different steps to these things, and we can influence the way we think and talk and make policy around climate change at every step of the process, not just 
any single step. I think it's worth saying that this doesn't mean that humans are bad or selfish. It just means that we're humans. And this is what our brains react to. It's impossible to hold all of the pain in the world in oneself effectively. Instead of understanding that as a bug, as one of a hu- as a human flaw, it's something that we should understand as a feature, and then we should develop policy techniques to work with that. That's really true. And what you said about it doesn't make us a bad person to not be able to understand those numbers and that level of suffering. I was thinking about that when Sebastian talked about how we use our fast brain and we use all these cues and these mental shortcuts because we wouldn't be able to consciously make every single decision we have to make in a day. Our brains would be too overwhelmed. And I think it's really interesting to also talk about the fast brain in a way that it's positive and how can we create cues for people that help them make decisions that are good for everybody and use appropriate biases. Yeah, like how can we work with the tendencies that humans are programmed towards in a positive way? Yeah, especially when so much of the conversation in the last six months has been about how it's a problem. And I think it's really hopeful to talk about how can we use this aspect of our brains in a way to make things better for everybody also. In my mind, one of the lessons of COVID that's been impressed upon me is how the types of things that have been a success and a failure are largely analogous as sort of an abbreviated version of the types of success and failures we might see with climate policy. For example, resilient societies and societies with strong instincts towards the public health good have fared better because people are more willing to follow collective action rules that help make things better for everyone. Uh, We see societies with certain types of leaders fare better, and we see policies that, as we've mentioned, you know, really impress upon the citizens sort of the idea that like this is the primary thing that we need to solve in order to be able to access other parts of the life of our lives it's not some false choice between covid and the economy or between covid and freedom that in order to have a strong economy and to have strong personal freedom you need to address this problem first to create room for those other spaces to grow and i do see a lot of parallels between that and climate where we talk about personal freedoms in the context of maybe, you know, the freedom to drive places, you know, freedom of mobility, freedom to eat certain things, to live your life a certain way. And we talk about the economy as well. And, you know, we present acting on climate change as a choice between the economy and between freedoms, but actually having a healthy climate is a prerequisite to a strong economy and to the maintenance of our personal freedoms. There's also a really interesting aspect where In some ways, COVID, I find, actually empowers your individual freedom in the sense that I am free to make choices like washing my hands, wearing a mask, social distancing that actually generate a public good. And so it's not only that it's enabling us to be able to have those freedoms, but it's I can actually use my freedoms and my abilities to contribute positively to this issue, which is something that with other issues, climate change included, doesn't always feel that way because there are so many systemic factors contributing to the issue that sometimes it feels like my individual actions don't matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the story is complicated, but I think all the special interests at play there and the way that dynamics have developed up until the current day. But I think 
you know, I think maybe one positive human instinct that we really can leverage is that humans want to feel like they're a part of something, myself included. We all want to feel like we belong in our communities and societies, and I think that that's potentially a powerful driving force. Uh, you know, I think we've seen that with success uh, with COVID, and I think that we can echo that success and replicate it in certain ways with climate change action as well. Totally. I know here in Toronto, a really interesting example of that is some of the community care programs that have started up, like the People's Pantry, who are providing uh, who are providing free meals to folks who are impacted by COVID. So immunocompromised folks who can't go out, people who've lost jobs, things like that. And not only are they providing a practical service, but they're building connections within the community that will last beyond COVID. And I think those kinds of community care programs will be so important in addressing climate change as well, not only from a perspective of mitigation as we feel effects of climate change, for example, community care programs that happen in places that have been hit by forest fires and the aftermath, things like that, but also leveraging those networks and those community care systems to bring people together to take action um, preventatively as well. For all of the criticism about what people aren't doing, I think that there's much that people are doing. When I look around and I look at the fact that we've normalized mask wearing in the place that I live and everyone just does it and, you know, we wash our hands and people willingly locked themselves down. Like, I think that we have to hold ourselves to high standards for what is right. And I think it's important to acknowledge the personal sacrifices that people have made for the greater for the greater health of our community. I wonder how can we make people feel like they're engaged in collective action in the same way for climate change? Because, you know, with COVID, when I go out and I'm waiting in line at the grocery store and we're all socially distanced, less so now because it's become more normal. But in the early days, sometimes I would chat you know, two meters apart from the person in front of me in line about about the fact that we're social distancing and about how tough it is, but we're working hard. And, you know, we would apologize when we accidentally stepped within a meter of somebody, something that normally would have been fine to do as you are trying to pass them in the grocery store. But comparable situations for climate change don't come to mind as easily for how we can make people feel part of that collective action outside of, for example, protesting, which inherently is a collective action, but how can we bring communities together to take action on climate change in the same way? I don't know that I expect you to have an answer. This is just something I'm thinking about now. Maybe goes back to what we discussed in the second episode about motivational interviewing and how we talk to people about climate change. The places in the world where mask wearing has become polarized have become polarized because people see it as this judgment that it's not just about the greater good, it's become a battle between personal freedoms and collective freedoms, as if these are in complete opposition to one another. That's the way that the climate conversation has been positioned for so long. And now what people are trying to change is that it's not about your personal freedoms to live your life as you see fit or the health of our society. It's that these two things are actually intrinsically linked together And in order to enhance your personal freedoms to stay healthy in the case of COVID, you need to do things. It's important to take certain actions like wearing a mask, repositioning the conversation so that it becomes normal and 
non-confrontational and not polarized to casually talk to a stranger about maybe the impacts of climate change or about the things that you're doing in order to solve it, that is a massive task. But I think that if we're going to draw the parallel, that's where we want to be going. The idea of being able to chat with my favorite barista at the coffee shop I go to about climate change, the way I talk about social distancing and COVID is like a dream idea because it is something that, you know, we're still kind of, you know, you don't talk politics with strangers and for and climate change is still viewed as a political idea when it shouldn't be because it really is a fact of life the same way COVID is. And to talk about climate change, but also to tell people about the solutions that are out there, which is such a missing part of the conversation. You know, to get a stranger excited for offshore seaweed farming for so many reasons, for its ocean cleaning and its carbon sucking and its food providing abilities. To be able to tell somebody about that without it feeling like an attack would be a really great place to get to. You know how excited I get about anytime I get to talk about climate solutions, but that's something that I don't share with people outside of my social circle. And I think you're right that that's a big missed opportunity that I would love to see myself and other people really embracing more. Yeah, I feel as if the conversation is stuck in a place of ignorance and panic. So if we acknowledge it, it means that we're acknowledging it's too late. So we don't acknowledge it because those two things are logically linked together. If we were able to get to a place of it's happening, it's not too late. Let's talk instead about the many, many exciting things that we can do that have all of these side benefits for making our lives better. Then that's just a much better place conversationally to be going. And I actually think that it would in some ways be easier than talking about COVID because a lot of climate solutions involve less personal sacrifice and more cool things than wearing a mask, than not seeing your community. Climate solutions can be so exciting. I know, I know you were kind of joking about the seaweed farming, but I'm just like so in love with that idea. Oh, I'm not, I'm not joking at all. That's maybe my favorite climate solution. I just love picturing all of the otters that could hang out in the seaweed and all of the fish and like, can we make it an ecotourism thing where you can go diving in the little seaweed forests? Ugh. So I think that even though climate change is a bigger task to tackle, there's more to be done, you know, because it infiltrates all areas of our life. There's also more to be excited about. There are so many ancillary benefits of all these solutions. Between our conversation now and my interview with Sebastian, I think what I'm really taking away from this is the power of the human brain and the way when we understand how our brains work and how people actually interact with the ideas of policy and interact with their opportunities to make change. There's so much potential there to not only make policy that's easy for people to follow and to make policies that affect the things people actually need it to affect, but also when we understand our brains, it also helps us try to set up our lives in a way where, for example, we can live in harmony with our natural environment. It lets us in our personal lives better understand the decisions we're making and how we can make decisions that contribute to climate solutions or to COVID solutions. These we better understand how our own decisions are made. And I think that's a really exciting thing. And I would really encourage folks to Take some time and try to be cognizant throughout the day about why are you making the decisions you're making. And when you learn about a new COVID policy, when you learn about a change to the mask wearing recommendations, for example, or the number of people who can gather, 
And if you're resistant to that policy, maybe think about why, like what is it that you don't like about it and try to understand the way you react to policy and rules. And that's not to say that there's a right or wrong wrong way to react, but I think it's just really interesting to really consider our fast brains and the way we're reacting to things and the way it influences our decision making. You know, upon further reflection, you might think, huh, like this rule, this regulation, this climate action is positioned poorly. I think we can do it better. And that means that we should, and that means that we should rethink how we can present policies and narratives in a way that they spark the best of our human instincts and not the worst. And if you find any climate policies that you think are positioned in a way that doesn't make sense and doesn't use the best of our human instincts, let us know. Share your thoughts. Share your examples with us. We'd love to hear them. Share them on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. You've got your choice of platform. And you can find the links to all of our social media on our website, rebalancingact.ca. And now is it time for something that's a little bit fun? It is always, it's, it's more than a little bit fun. I love climate allies. I know, I do too. I think it's one of my favorite parts. For this week's climate allies, this is, I think, one of my favorite potential places for allyship to happen. And there's a really fun TikTok video to demonstrate this that I will be including in the show notes. Please watch it. It's so good. Thank you, Sebastian, for actually sharing it with me. What I really want to see happen coming out of COVID is in the last six months, actually more than that, probably the last nine months now, we have learned so much about the way epidemiologists are communicating with the public and what is and isn't working. Years from now, COVID will be used as a case study, I am sure, for science communication and the communication around pandemics and epidemiology to the public. And what I would love to see is for conversations to happen between epidemiologists and climate scientists about what can be learned from the communication that happened during COVID, because it happened on such a fast time frame, and about a subject that people didn't know about. And what can we learn from that for climate scientists who are in a slightly different position? Because so many of us have preconceived notions about climate change, but we're entering a stage of urgency that in many ways didn't exist before in climate science communication. And I think there's so much we can learn, and I would love to see this allyship happen. Love of science is such a strong, uniting force that there is great potential for allyship, and maybe it's already happening. I hope so. If there is an epidemiologist or client scientist listening to this and you're already doing this, let us know. I hope it's happening. We get so siloed sometimes that we don't learn from others the way we can, but I think this is such a great opportunity for some shared learning, and, you know, we love to see it. Yeah, so we're putting this out into the world. Please ally please be allies to each other. And we appreciate you both. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our episode on the importance of civil society. Do you feel disconnected from your community? Maybe you feel like the crucial we in climate action is missing. Like you want to do something, but you don't know if others do. Tune in two Fridays from now for a discussion on what civil society is. It's importance for democracy and climate action and how we can build a stronger starting today. This is Kieran and Leslie Ann. We'll see you folks soon.